Welcome to the Pirate's Eye Podcast, produced by the Seton Hall Alumni Engagement and Philanthropy Department. I'm your host, Bianca Velez, Class of 2010 alumna and Director of Alumni Communication and Digital Engagement here at Seton Hall. Each month, I'll be sitting down with an alumnus to talk about their career, their life journey, and the role that Seton Hall has played in getting them where they are today, or continues to play. Joining us on the show this month is Matt Lachlan. If you are a New Jersey Devils fan, you might recognize his voice. Matt is the play-by-play announcer of the Devils hockey team and host of his own pirate podcast called Pirates Talk. A dedicated alumnus, Matt recently joined the Seton Hall Alumni Board of Directors, but he's no stranger to volunteerism at the Hall. For years, Matt has maintained a connection with WSOU, where his career in sports broadcasting began. Take a listen to Matt's story. Matt, thank you so much for joining me on the Pirate's Eye podcast. Oh, Bianca, it's my pleasure and I'm honored to to be among the early guests and looking forward to spending time with you. Thank you so much. I have to admit, I'm a little intimidated. This is the first time I have a professional broadcaster on the show. I feel like I have to bring more than my A game. No, listening to uh, the most recent one with uh, John Garcia, you're going to be fine. You did a great (laughs) job there and, and I'm excited about it, as I said. Yes, thank you. I appreciate that. Matt, we know you well as the play-by-play voice for the New Jersey Devils hockey team. But interestingly enough, you did not attend Seton Hall as a communications major. So tell me why you chose Seton Hall and what your original career ambitions were. Sure, and, and you're absolutely right. So it's kind of ironic how things have turned out. Well, when I had to make a decision about where to go to school. It was a different time than what it is now. You know, my sons, and I have three of them, they all visited a number of schools along the East Coast before finally deciding what they wanted. And it was a different world back then. It it wasn't as involved. So I stuck with a, a New Jersey focus and loved Seton Hall when I got up there and, and took a tour and realized, you know, how intimate the campus was, how family-oriented the people at the school were. And once the acceptance came, you know, I made another trip up there just to be sure, but it just solidified in my head that Seton Hall is where I wanted to go. But you're right, it had nothing to do with communications. Uh, It had then and still has now a fantastic reputation in the business world of producing graduates who go out and make their mark in the business scene and the Stillman School of Business was it for me. And I went there planning to be an accountant. I love math. I really do still to this day. And I thought, perfect, accounting is math. And I had a teacher at St. Mary's High School in South Amboy where I attended. It no longer exists, unfortunately, falling under the wave of a lot of Catholic school closings over the last 10 or 15 years. At any rate, Mrs. Holiday, Dorothy Holiday was her name, and she asked what I planned to major in, and I told her, and I said, oh, you know, counting. She goes, oh, you're going to hate it. She said, it's not mathematics. It's arithmetic. You know, you, you do addition, subtraction, you do division, multiplication, and then it's more legal. You know, where do assets go, and how do you 
you know, how do you debit an account, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Well, you know, at my age, what, what, what is one of my favorite teachers of all time? No. Right. So I'm, <laughs> you know, well, thanks, thanks for your advice, but it's, you know, full speed ahead. And it turned out she was absolutely right, which is no knock on my friends who are accountants or the accountants that the Stillman School of Business produces, but it was not for me. Right. But at the end of my freshman year, you know, I walked across campus, heard about, had heard and knew about this station, WSOU, and decided to try my, my hand there. And so a complete pivot from being an accountant to maybe trying my hand at this communications world. And now, what was it like when you actually started to become involved in WSOU? So you walked in and you stood and you've had a relationship with the radio station pretty much ever since. So what was the hook? What kept you there? Once I walked into the, the offices there and met the students and felt the buzz and the vibe, the enthusiasm, I mean, it was just a beehive of activity. And I said, wow, this, this really opened my eyes. And honestly, I just started working there right away. The, the incoming sports director for what would be my sophomore year uh, a guy by the name of Stu Miller, he was one of the first people I met, he and the then station manager, Kevin Hislop. And they they said, listen, you walked in, you knocked on the door, you're interested, come on along. Took me on a tour and said, whatever you want to put in is what you'll get out of it. And honestly, from that moment on, I put in as much time at that radio station as I could. Uh, I asked about covering events that were in the area even that summer. And sent it out on WSOU letterhead and got accepted to get credentials to a variety of events. And, oh, uh, I, I mean, I hit it. I found out exactly what I wanted to do. But I will say this, not so confident that I went into the communications department and changed majors. <laughs> I stayed in business, just switched to marketing, needed something to fall back on in case this crazy communications thing didn't work out. So I am a Stillman School graduate. And I've mentioned this before to other people and in other forums, so I apologize if people have heard it before, but I would say many have not. I am a proud graduate of the Stillman School of Business with a marketing degree, but I'm just as proud to say I've not put into practice any of the business lessons I learned there because from the day I graduated, I've been able to stay in the communications world and SOU taught me so much that has carried me for so long. I love that. Now, so tell me a little bit about your career story. How did you get into broadcasting? How did you stay into broadcasting? And I know part of that it has to do with a Seton Hall connection through Bob Lee. So walk me through how that process happened. Well, sure. And, and Bob's been a mentor and a friend for many, many years. And so he and I did not cross paths at Seton Hall while he was a student and I was a student. But when he left the hall, before he wound up going to ESPN and establishing himself as one of the great sports journalists of our time, he worked for a local cable company that was based out of East Orange called Suburban Cablevision. Now, cable was in its infancy. It's not the behemoth it was or is now. But it was there basically to provide a clearer signal uh, and to give you some out-of-town stations, mostly sports. One of the things that Suburban Cablevision prided itself on was it did a lot of 
local events as well for a separate channel called TV3. And Bob was the sports director there. And so they were doing a lot of high school games. Well, lo and behold, in my senior year, TV3 is broadcasting a high school basketball game from Walsh Gymnasium. Bob is doing the game. He decides to come in and say hello to whoever was at the station because that's where he cut his teeth. And I was there. Now, he was somewhat familiar with my name because, again, that's how you got Seton Hall Sports News, uh, other than reading it in the paper. But if you wanted to listen to a game, it was through WSOU, and I was the sports director. So that's that's how he knew me. So it was fortuitous that I was there because after we exchanged pleasantries, he said, listen, I'm working at this station over in East Orange. Why didn't you stop by? Oh, you're not a communications major? Well, I can't help you get credit. And I certainly can't pay you, but I can give you valuable experience. And, you know, I tell this to everybody, many doors open, but you have to be aware of when a door is opening, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not, Mm -hmm. that was pretty obvious, but they're not always obvious. And I could have said, oh, yeah, but I'm too busy enjoying my time at Seton Hall and having fun and finishing out my career there. And TV, honestly, really wasn't what I wanted at the time, although ultimately I came back to it right. But um, and through Bob. But I said, hey, what an opportunity. So you know, I took the short drive from South Orange to East Orange, and that's how I started my relationship and friendship with Bob. And he was a great teacher, and that opened me up to the TV world. But upon graduation, I still pursued radio, but ultimately Bob left the ESPN Bruce Beck, who has had an exemplary, exemplary career in New York with both Madison Square Garden Network and, and for a long time now at Channel 4 uh, doing their sports, he replaced Bob. He was Bob's assistant, became the sports director, and they had an opening. And so I had been doing some work in radio. I had graduated from the hall, but now I'm working in radio, but still maintaining a relationship with that station. And when they had an opening for another assistant, who said, would you be interested in applying? And by the way, TV3 had a ton. Bruce is not a Seton Hall grad, but they had so many Seton Hall people because of its proximity and because of you know what the communications department was doing and the people mm-hmm. who came out of there. So it was really a Seton Hall connection as well. I, I interviewed with two Seton Hall people who were running the station, wow. uh, Bruce as, as, as the sports director, but it, it was just a natural family connection, so to speak. And that got me into TV, but it was all because of Bob. And then I just kept knocking on doors, you know, hoping somebody would open another one for me. To ultimately lead you to being the play-by-play announcer for the New Jersey Devils. And the last time we spoke, you enlightened me to the fact that really the spots are limited for those um, who have ambitions to be a play-by-play announcer. And with that having been your goal, how does it feel to know that you hold one of those spots? Well, I'm very blessed, and I realize how fortunate I am to live out that dream. Uh, You know, when I was a young kid and falling asleep in my bedroom in Sayreville, New Jersey, you know, a bedroom I shared with my brother, Peter, um, you know, we would listen to games. He's a little younger than I am, but close enough in age. And at any rate, you know, we would listen to the local teams and fall asleep to that. And once I found that this is what I wanted to do uh, while I was at Seton Hall, I thought, wouldn't it be unbelievably for 
fortunate if I could be one of those voices that people fell asleep to. Not that I put them to sleep, but that they fell asleep <laughs> to. <laughs> and, and so that's always what I wanted to do. But once I moved from radio, and I wasn't really, upon graduation, doing play-by-play. I was doing news, and I was doing some sports reporting. Then I moved to TV3. I did a lot of play-by-play, okay? But it was regional. It was high school. Then I had a chance to move on and work for MSG and one of its predecessors, Sports Channel. But again, you follow the path that gets you wherever you go, and that was not as a play-by-play guy. Once I, I transitioned to a higher level from local TV to really regional TV, doing the Sports Channel and MSG work, I didn't do that much play-by-play. So 15 years ago, the position with the Devils opened up, and I thought, all right, I know leaving TV from radio to radio is not something that most people do, uh, TV being the tail that wags the dog, but I had a chance to live my dream of, of being a play-by-play announcer for a team. And fortunately enough, after applying for it, uh, the, the man in charge, Lou Lamorello, who was uh, the longtime GM and president of the Devils, who knew my work because I was doing TV work on Devils Telecast, but he knew I needed some improvement on the radio side, but he thought my work ethic was such that that would come. And, you know, knock on wood, it's been 15 years now, and, you know, I'm living that dream that I had hoped to live when I was an undergrad at Seton Hall. Wow, I love that. And I'm sure covering professional sports is one experience that cannot be matched, but let's circle back to what it was like to cover Seton Hall athletics during your time. Are there memorable moments that stand out or athletes that come to mind immediately? Sure. And, you know, anyone who looks up my association with Seton Hall will know if if it's not included in this podcast, but I graduated in 1979. So we're going back a little bit to say the least. And that was, it was before the big East. Right. So it was, and just before the big East started, but I did not have the pleasure of being involved in Seton Hall's uh, participation in those early years. But the people there are among the legends in Seton Hall athletics history, beginning with Richie Regan, who was the athletic director at the time, and of course, member of the Hall of Fame and, you know, among the greatest athletes and most important people beyond athletics uh, in Seton Hall history. So he was the athletic director. Bill Raftery was the men's basketball coach. Uh, Sue Regan, she wasn't Sue Regan at the time, but eventually married Richie, was the women's basketball coach. And, you know, Walsh was just packed. And I know for those listening now who don't necessarily recall those days or or don't have any association with those days, it's hard to understand what it was like when a St. John's or a Manhattan or a Villanova came to Walsh and it was hot as could be. And there's a little gondola set up for the radio station to be above the action. So you're not courtside, but it's such a great venue that that didn't matter. So you're up there in this gondola. It's just a sea of people. There's not a seat to be had. It's hot because it's packed. The players and coaches and fans are right up against the edge of the court. 
there's a stage at one end of the court, which added a, a whole nother element to what the scene was like and the passion of the fans. And there were some great players there. Again, it wasn't Big East, but Seton Hall was certainly an Eastern, if not power, certainly a school that had to be reckoned with. And so great times and Glenn Mosley and Nick Galis uh, were a part of that, that crew at that time. And Mark Coleman and, there were so many success stories there and, you know, great times and Glenn Mosley among, again, the very best basketball players, Nick Gallus went to Greece and had a fantastic career uh, as one of the great European players of all time. And it, so it was just really special. The, the radio station was just across the hall from the athletic department, which was much smaller again. And so everybody kind of knew everybody and, you know, I, I was respectful of the fact that I was an undergrad and here are these bigger than life figures. So it's not like I went to the athletic department every day and hung out, but <laughs> you were always welcome. You know, you were embraced as people are at Seton Hall. Um, you were part of the family and, you know, Richie and Sue and Billy Hadi Mahan was the assistant coach. I mean, these are just people who were just fun to be around. They got it. Good people, welcoming, warm and friendly. I, I will say this. One thing that, that I, I remember from Seton Hall, too, aside from the excitement of the games at Walsh and some of the great players and, and rivalries, is that we had a football team at Seton Hall at the time. Ah. And Madigan was the coach. I know. And it didn't exist for too many years after I left. They played Division Three football, meaning, you know, smaller level. Right. But, yeah, there was football played out on ONC Carroll, where now, you know, only the soccer teams roam. But if you think about it, there was a football game played there on Saturdays, which get, gave those who stayed over uh, for the weekend uh, and something to do and go to. And it was just a, another another level of excitement to do football, college football. And although the hall wasn't terribly successful, nonetheless, it was fun to do. I mean, they, you know, they weren't 0-9, but they weren't 9-0 and either while I was right. there. So, so uh, there was a, that, that was a fun element of being there, too. And, of course, Mike Shepard had only recently taken over for Owen Carroll, and, and there were some just dynamic baseball teams and baseball players. So even though the Big E certainly dominates the scene now and Seton Hall's participation and association with the Big East has does, done wonders for the school, they were still producing great student-athletes back then. So I have nothing but warm and fuzzies from my time there. Oh, yeah. And I love the way you paint the picture of just that period right before, for those of us that don't have an association with that time period, to give us an understanding of what it must have been like. It's hard to imagine, but I'll tell the story, right? So, I mean, it was so very, very local. So uh, Jim Lamparello was hired. He was a writer at the Setonian. He left after graduation and worked in sports information at Rutgers briefly. But Seton Hall wanted to bring him back, and he did a great job for many years before he went on to a longtime career with the New Jersey Nets as an executive. At any rate, so Jimmy comes in, young guy, all these ideas. He's a couple of years older than I am. And I remember first home game of the season, which I'm going to say was my senior year. So that'd be 78, 79 season. So uh, Jimmy convinces Richie Regan, we're going to have a raffle, a fan participation, right? Everybody, every ticket will be thrown in uh, and a winner will be, not a winner, but someone will be drawn to take a half court shot to win a color TV. Okay. 
Richie goes, are you nuts? We can't afford to buy the TV. He goes, no, no, I'm going to go into the village and I will get somebody uh, to at least we can get some money from that. I forgot what the venue was, but we'll get them to advertise, so to speak. So we'll make some money there. No one's going to win the TV. And we'll just give the TV back to the guy at the end of the season. Right? <laughs> Who's going to make the half court shot? First game. Jimmy's out on the court. Here comes the fan. Hits the half court shot. Wins the TV that Seton Hall now has to pay for. No. The advertising was going into the athletic department. So it was small. It was warm. It was intimate. Jimmy was in shock. Richie was like, are you kidding me, kids? But they loved each other. Um, but that kind of tells you the difference. It was a much smaller, much, much smaller world back then, but no less enjoyable. And things have changed dramatically for sure. Oh, my God. What a great story. I mean, just think about it. A color TV, right? <laughs> exactly, right? And that Seton Hall didn't pay for it, but they wanted the few bucks that they were getting for advertising to go into the athletic department. So it was good for the village uh, shop owner. And he was going to get the TV back. No. And then he was like, hey, you got to pay me for the TV. <laughs> oh, oh, my well. God. I love that. What a great story. And you're right, things have changed tremendously. And this year specifically, the pandemic has changed all of our lives, right? So sports and broadcasting have certainly been affected as well. You're going into a new season of covering hockey. How do you feel about going into this season under these circumstances? It will be so very different. When COVID entered the sports world and shut everything down back in March, we still had games with fans and what have you. And then once sports began to return, well, I'll I'll just speak to the national hockey league, the national hockey league returned their return to play format did not include the devils. We were not among the top 24 teams. We are in a rebuilding process. Mm -hmm. And so I did not have not done a game since March. So my last experience is doing a game with fans, a lot of fans. Right. Many of my colleagues have experienced in, in that return to play format as the league eventually crowned a Stanley Cup champion, what it's like to call a game, not from the rink, because you weren't allowed to be at the rink. You had to call it from a remote location, which meant you were doing a home game. Oh, they were all road games, I should say. Uh, they were either in Toronto or Edmonton. You were doing games from a studio, watching the game and announcing from the monitor vastly different no fans allowed so some fake crowd noise would be pumped in and it was just according to my colleagues again just a different experience altogether so hey look i'd much rather we have fifteen thousand plus fans at the rock and fans everywhere but that's not the reality for now and life is about experiences so you know we're moving toward the start of a new season, and I will get a new experience. Again, one I'll be happy to get rid of in a short period of time if we can start to get fans back into the buildings, but we'll be calling games from the Rock. It looks like, we're not sure, it looks like we'll be allowed, all the home broadcasters will be allowed to be at their home site where the games are played, but will not travel. So I'll get to announce a game with no fans, which is odd, and I'll get in it to announce games by watching on a TV monitor and not actually being on site, which is the first time. So uh, I'm curious as to how it will all play out. But after some struggles at the start, you know, matching 
the audio with the picture so the broadcast sounded like you were actually at the game. It was a new process for the NHL as well, and so they ironed a few difficulties out. So I think it'll be smooth sailing, but it'll require a different level of preparation, that's for sure. Yeah. Well, I wish you the best of luck in this new transitional period. Now, in terms of your career as a whole, you don't work a a nine to five. You have a demanding career. And I can only imagine the level of support that you would need in order to be able to balance the career and your personal life. So what kind of support system is it that someone in a profession like yours needs? Well, you do need, without question, I'm glad you asked because many people don't recognize, you know, what it takes to be able to do this. So, yeah, from my standpoint, yeah, holidays are missed. Nights and weekends are work time. Uh, You travel a lot, so you're not at home. And so there are personal sacrifices, but those are sacrifices that we all make willingly because we want to be in the business. But there are people who kind of come along for the ride and it's not necessarily what they signed up for. And in this case, even though I was working in the business, I was not working to the, to the point where I am now. You know, my wife didn't know what she was getting into. I was just a high school announcer. And so I was home at 1030. Yeah, I worked nights and some weekends, but I could control my schedule a lot better. Um, and you know, I wasn't away from home and we have three children. So my wife, Maggie, has always been supportive, has always been someone who said, look, you know, this is a partnership. You go and do what you enjoy and we'll figure it out. And she did a superb job. I cannot thank her publicly enough. Without that, I don't know whether I would be as successful as I as I've been, however that's defined by people. I don't know whether I necessarily would have continued uh, because uh, I wouldn't want to cause so much turmoil if it really was difficult for her to deal with. But she's been all in. And I I mean, I've gotten phone calls on the road saying, hey, like literally, there's water shooting up from the front of our lawn by the street. what do I do? And we had you know, <laughs> the, the pipes burst out in front as like a little geyser. And what can I do? I'm on the road taking this phone call. And we've, we've got a game. We're on a road trip. I can only offer so much support. But there was no whining. There was no crying. There was just like, ah, we got to do something. And you know, she took care of it. <laughs> uh, you know, that she just rolled up her sleeve. She didn't, she didn't literally fix the pipe, but she, <laughs> that day, I mean, she tracked somebody down to come in and do it. And, you know, that was it. It was taken care of. So without that, without that kind of uh, support, and I, I don't know where I would be. So Maggie's been great. And the kids have benefited from her uh, parenting them. And, you know, I've been a part of it, no doubt. I mean, I don't want to minimize. Of course. I've done here at home with my three children. But without her, it would be much more difficult. I think anyone who's had a level of success and who's had a, in our business, and who's had a a successful marriage would tell you that they they found a gem because it is demanding. And, you know, the show must go on. And you do miss family weddings and you do miss holidays. You know, the only holiday I've not worked on is Christmas. Other than that, you name it, I worked. Uh, and 
many times not at home. So it's not like I got home for a late dinner. Right. And that's just that's just what we do. It's it's what because we are people's entertainment. You know, the New Jersey Devils provide entertainment to fans. When I was covering the Mets during the summer, the Mets provided entertainment for people. And hopefully they'll provide a lot more entertainment moving forward with a new owner. But <laughs> uh, you know, that's that's just who we are. That's just what this business is. And I was very fortunate that uh that and have been very fortunate that, that my wife understood that right from the get go and never I mean never complained about where are you, why am I having to handle this stuff at home by myself while she was trying to establish her own career. So I could go on and on and on, but I think people listening and I Bianca, I, I, I know you get it by what I said. Uh, she's been the rock for sure. Oh, yeah. She sounds like an amazing woman. And I love the way that speaks to the power of relationships. And another relationship that you have maintained over the years is with Seton Hall, right? And primarily through WSOU. And now you've shifted into another phase and you are now a part of the alumni board of directors. So you've also been able to still maintain a relationship with your alma mater and have even increased that involvement at this point. Why do you feel that's important or why is it important for alumni in general to stay involved with Seton Hall? It's important because I can only speak for myself, but I know I, at the same time, I'm speaking for the 100,000 plus living alumni of Seton Hall that the foundation for our success came on the campus in South Orange from the professors, from our fellow students from the internships we got, from the people we met along the way, from the family relationship that still exists. As much as Seton Hall has grown, as much as the campus has changed, the standard is still, it's the blue and white family, right? And that is so important. And so it's easy as you progress in your career to think that somehow you've done it all on your own and any of the success any of us has certainly is because we worked hard at it and we're driven, but the basis really came at Seton Hall. It, it molded us at a critical time in our lives. We're coming out of high school and you know we think we know everything. We learn quickly. We don't, but we're still, you know, we're still young and immature in so many ways. And you know, and Seton Hall gave me, at least, and I know so many others, as I said, guidance and understanding of the world and love to. You know, I mean, it's it's an embracing place. And to be able to continue that, uh, to be able to help enhance that is, is an honor. Um, and uh, as I said, so excited. So for anyone who's listening who's not taken the step in whatever way they can, I would just encourage them to do so. Uh, there's always some time available that you can give back and help somebody, you know, play it forward. I mean, Bob Lee was a recent graduate and he asked me to come along for what's been a long, incredible ride. And, and the least we can do is try to help others in that same, same vein, help keep Seton Hall's legacy going. Thank you so much, Matt, once again. And thank you for being such a proud pirate. Bianca, thank you very much and be well. Matt is just one of more than 100,000 alumni 
who demonstrate what great minds can do with a Seton Hall education. If you know of a fellow pirate that we should have our eye on, don't hesitate to email us at alumni at shu.edu. Make sure you stay up to date with all of the virtual engagement opportunities being offered to Seton Hall alumni. Visit the Hall Hub at www.shu.edu slash Hall Hub. Share the news of this podcast with your friends and follow at Seton Hall Alumni on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Hope you join us for the next episode of the Seton Hall Pirate's Eye podcast.